Okay, we are uh, back in Romans 8. We'll be here the next couple of weeks uh, working through this amazing chapter uh, in Romans. Really, the, like we said a couple of weeks ago, this is, this is kind of the pinnacle of the pinnacle. It's the high point of one of the high points in the entire Bible. So we've jumped into really the, the best place, and we're working our way through this chapter, and we get to really talk about some great stuff today. Before I read, I just want to um, ask you this question and have you just chew on this while, while I'm reading. How do you deal with difficulty in life? How do you, how do you deal with it when, when something tragic happens or when something really confusing happens or when something really sad happens or frustrating? How do you deal with the difficulties of life? Keep that question in the back of your mind as I read. We're going to come back to it later. We're in Romans 8, verses 12 through 17 today. Hear now God's word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful to be here. We're grateful to read those incredible words. And we ask, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, that you will use your word to change our hearts. That is something we can't do on our own. It's something miraculous. So we ask that you would move and work even now, that we might um, love you, that we might know you, that we might want to draw near you, that we might see even more clearly who we are because of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. When we lived uh, in Austin, and my kids, uh, my, my older two, started elementary school in Austin, and, and where we were zoned, their elementary school, also in that zoning, was a place called the Helping Hands Home, uh, and it was an orphanage. And so my kids went to school with the kids who lived in that orphanage. And, and very oftentimes, they would come home from school telling us these stories, and most of those stories were, were pretty tragic, honestly. You know, they would tell a story about a kid who had scars on his face because his parents abused him. Or they would tell stories, you know, of just the, the deep sadness that some of these kids had. But every now and then, they would come home and they would, see, they would say, um, so-and-so doesn't go to our school anymore. And this little smile would kind of creep across their face, and they would say, that's because... He got adopted. And it was always this joyous occasion for us, even as a family, to be able to celebrate, yes, you're going to miss your friend, but we are so happy that that child has been adopted into a family. Because we just kind of know that adoption changes the way that we relate to the world. When we belong to a family, when we are part of a family, it changes how we relate, how we do everything. Now, of course, it doesn't make everything easy. Those kids who got adopted 
still dealt with a lot of difficulty, and I'm sure those adoptive parents still dealt with a lot of difficulty with those kids, but there is something deep down that we all know that when you belong to a family, that when your name is changed, that when you are legally given, that is really Paul's main point here in these passages. Because he says, and the Bible says this multiple places, is that the same thing is true of Christians as is true of those kids from the Helping Hands home. Is that we have been taken out of the orphanage, the non-belonging, the slavery even, and then we have been brought into God's family. We actually hear that right there in these verses. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons of God. That word actually can mean both sons and daughters, children of God. John says it later in the Bible in 1 John 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. In the Roman world, there was a, an interesting thing that could take place. Adoption was actually kind of a big deal because oftentimes in a Roman family, you would have not only your kids, but in that household, you know, there would be typically household servants or slaves as well. And the Roman father was, was the, the, the paterfamilias, the, the owner of all of it and the one who was in charge. And if you were the blood children of that father, then you had the rights to the inheritance. You had the rights to belong into that family. You, you were a citizen of that family and a member of that family legally. And there was a big difference between the sons and the slave kids. Now, oftentimes, again, there could be servants in the house and there, there could even be a servant family living in your house, and it could be that that servant was the teacher of the children, and that servant teacher might have his own children, and the kids who were the, 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 the family's blood children and the kids who were the servant kids would play together, and they would live together, and they would eat together, and their lives would seem like they were very similar, except they were really different because it was only the sons who had the full inheritance. But what a Roman father could do is that if he maybe had no children of his own, particularly no sons of his own, or if there was a, a, a child who, who had no parents, or even if there was a child who maybe had grown up in his own home as a servant whose, whose parents were servants, this Roman father could legally adopt that child and bring him into his home. And that legal proclamation would make that adopted child given the same exact status as the birth children. They were given an inheritance. They were given a new name. They were given, in many ways, a new life. Adoption changed everything for them. Again, this is what the Bible says is true of us. If you belong to Jesus, one of the great proclamations of the Bible is that God has, by the work of Christ on our behalf, adopted us into his family, given us a new name, called us his children, said that we are now... Uh, heirs of the promises of God, given an inheritance. We belong. We are insiders if we are united to Christ. But we don't always act that way, do we? Many years ago when Hampton was young, we went to a football game, 
And uh, at the game, he was so excited to be there. And, you know, as a little boy and as an excited kid at a football game, he was bouncing all over the walls. And the walls, by walls, I mean uh, all of the things along the football stadium, including the handrails. And so he was jumping all around the handrails and ended up slipping and falling and hitting his head kind of on the, on the concrete steps at the stadium. And it was a scary moment. In fact, we had to take him to, uh, to a little room there where there were doctors, and he was sat down, and the doctors started asking him these questions like, what's your name? Who's that guy pointing to me? How old are you? Because they wanted to make sure that he remembered who he was. He's fine, obviously. Uh, but the same thing can happen, I believe, to Christians, right? is that we can kind of have a temporary amnesia about who we are and who we belong to. And even though we can open up the Bible and we can read about our sonship, oftentimes we live our lives as if we're something completely different. And I think the Apostle Paul's main point here, what he really wants to communicate to us today, and if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. He wants to remind us that we belong to God, that we are God's children. And that being God's children actually has some real benefits. We're going to talk about three of those benefits today and then talk a little bit about why it matters. So here's those three, and they all start with an A, which I'm pretty excited about. Access, assurance, and acceptance. Okay, Benefits of being a son or daughter of God is that we have access, we have assurance, and we have acceptance. Let's talk about access first. And what this means is that we have access to the Father. Listen again as Paul goes on. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now that word Abba there is not the 70s Swedish pop band. Uh, We're not singing Dancing Queen uh, during this service. It is an Aramaic word for father. A quick background, uh, in, in this time, there would have been three languages really spoken. You know, they call somebody, um, speaks three languages, trilingual. If you speak two languages, you're called bilingual. If you speak one language, you are called an American. Uh, and in this time, in the first century, Uh, Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, would have been kind of the language of the culture. It's the language of commerce. It's the language that you communicate with other folks, you know, who are all part of the, the Roman Empire. Greek is really that language of education, of commerce. And then Hebrew is the language of of religion. So if you were a Jew, Hebrew is what the Old Testament is written in. Whenever you would go to synagogue or to the temple, all of that would be in Hebrew. So that was your language, your belonging to God's people language. But then there was a familial language as well, and that was Aramaic. It was the language that was spoken between family members and between friends. It was the familiar language. And this word is so great that it appears here in, in a letter that's written in Greek. Paul intentionally chooses to use a word in, in Aramaic to emphasize the familial nature of what he's talking about. And he says, we get to cry out to God and say, Abba. It's a word in Aramaic that is tender. It's the child would call their father. It's like dad. It comes with all of the power and authority of a father but all of the tenderness and love and compassion and care of a father. It's all of those things wrapped up together in this beautiful, familiar, familial word, Abba, Father. 
And do you remember when we went through the Sermon on the Mount? What Jesus was saying over and over, Paul is actually picking up on the same things that Jesus was saying. Jesus' favorite word for God when he said, this is how you are to talk to God. This is who God is. His favorite name for God was your heavenly father. Jesus calls God not just his father, but our father. And so we have access to God like a child has access to his good father. Now, listen, let me pause here for just a second, and, and I know, I know that the word father is not a happy word for everybody. I know for some of you, maybe the word father is actually a very painful word because your relationship with your father was destructive to you. And let me just say that, that God, our heavenly father, is only even a little bit like our most perfect fathers on earth. He is the most perfect version of the most perfect fathers that we have ever known. And so if your experience with father is a negative one, let me just remind you that God is not like your abusive father. God is not like your absent father. God is not like your emotionally distant father. God is a father who is tender and loving and gentle. And he calls us to know him. In fact, sometimes I think our own experience with our parents really colors the way that we understand God as our Father, doesn't it? I had a seminary professor who had this incredible practice. He kept uh, a a spreadsheet. He had had taken this spreadsheet and he had used one of the columns to, to go through the whole Bible and mark down all of the attributes of God and, uh, and, and biblical references for all of those attributes. And then he had taken the next column for his father and then another for his mother, and he had checked off any time his father or his mother actually exhibited those attributes of God. And then he had gone back and he had highlighted all of the places where it was absent for him, especially from his father, and he had memorized all of those verses. You see what he's doing? He was, he was understanding These are the gaps I'm going to have. These are the ways that I know I'm not going to understand God as my Abba Father because I haven't seen it in my life. So I need to know it cold so that it will live inside of me and I will know God deeply for who he is. Maybe some of you need to do something extreme like that. Or maybe you simply need to take a deeper look at who God is as your Father. All right, let's move to the second one. Assurance. Being God's children, his sons, gives us real assurance. I love the way that Paul says this here. Listen again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's one mention of the Holy Spirit. For you did not receive the Spirit, another, of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons. Paul says that God has given us the Holy Spirit to remind us of who we are. And we talked about this last week when we talked about the Spirit's role in our lives is that one of his major roles for Christians is to remind us of who we belong to, to remind us of the family that we have, to remind us that God is our Father. I don't know if you've ever kind of experienced this. Maybe you've seen this picture uh, of a a child and a father walking together. And just picture it now. Think of yourself maybe walking behind them. And they're holding hands and they're walking together together. And at some point, the father leans down and he picks up the child and he kind of puts him in his arms and he says, son, I love you. And the child looks back at his dad and says, I love you too, daddy. It's beautiful, right? 
It's a beautiful picture. Hopefully many of us have experienced that. Hopefully many of us have been a part of that. But here's the thing. Was there anything legally different about that child before his father had picked him up and told him he loved him? No, he was still legally his child, the same, the same legal relationship both before and after, but there is something experientially different, isn't there? There's something experientially different when your father says, I love you and holds you in his arms and gives you a kiss on the forehead. You know, you experience the fatherhood at that point. And friends, that is the Holy Spirit's job with us is the Holy Spirit's job in many ways is to make what is legally true of us, experientially true of us as well, to remind and reinforce to us who we are as children of God. Jesus has made that so in his death and his resurrection. He has declared us righteous. When we are united to Jesus by faith, we become legally one of his own. We are adopted. We stand before the judge and he says, your name has changed. You are a new person. But the work of God is not done at that point because we're forgetful people. We need the Holy Spirit to come to us so often and remind us, make experientially true for us what is legally true. So that is the great assurance that we have, and that is the work of the Spirit in our lives to build that assurance in us. Let's move on to the third thing, and that is acceptance. Part of being God's children means we are fully accepted. Listen again to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Paul distinguishes between the idea of being a slave and living like a slave and the idea of being and living like a son, an adopted son. Now, we just heard, I think, uh, when Serena read it, one of the most beautiful descriptions of this dynamic in the Bible, and that's the parable that Jesus tells of the, the two sons, or what we oftentimes call the prodigal son. Let me just recount it one more time for you. There's a father who owns a large estate. He's got a pretty decent amount of wealth, and he has two sons. And one of those younger sons says to him something that would have been totally absurd at the time. Dad, I'd like to go ahead and have my inheritance now so I can spend it. Basically, kind of wish you were dead and I had the money, so go ahead and give it to me now, and so I'll go and take off. And that's what he does. He takes his inheritance early, and he goes and he wastes it all in, in fast living, and he thinks it's going to fulfill him, and he feeds himself with all the things that he thinks are going to make him full, and of course, all of it is totally futile. And he comes wandering back to the father, broke and broken down and feeling ashamed, terrible, and he comes to the father, who, by the way, has been waiting for him and goes out to find him, and he says these words. Did you pick these up when we read it? Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. Treat me as one of your servants. Take me back as a servant so that I can work my way back into your favor because I'm not worthy to be called your son. So maybe you could at least receive me as a servant, as a slave, and someday maybe I could kind of work back up into the possibility of being called a son again. And what does the father say? He doesn't say, you idiot boy. 
go and hang out with the servants for a while. See if you can work your tail off until I'm finally not frustrated with you anymore. And then we'll see. Maybe, maybe we'll see if you can work yourself back into my good graces. Well, he says just the opposite, doesn't he? Instead of calling his son a servant, he calls the servants and says, prepare a meal for my son because he's home. The father lavishes his son with his love, and in doing so, he reminds him of his place in the family. He says, you are not a servant. You are a son. Now, let's pause for just a second and see how maybe we do this on our own. How oftentimes do we think of ourselves and our relationship to God that way? We carry our shame and our guilt, and we come to God, and we say, if, if I could just, just kind of work it off for you. We start bargaining and making deals. Okay, fine, I'll do this. If you'll accept me back, I promise that I will fulfill all this list of things. You can send me wherever you want. I'll do all of these steps. I'll, I'll, I'll make all the repairs, right? That's slavery mentality. Because what that says is I'm standing outside and I need to work my way into getting inside. But what the Father says is you're already inside. Why would you act like an outsider when you are already a son? And by the way, one way to know if you are working under a slave mentality with the way that you relate to God is to look at the way that you relate to other people. Because if you require those things from them for them to get into your good graces or to earn your forgiveness, then there's a pretty good chance that you probably think that God requires that of you as well. Of course, there's a second son in the story too, though, isn't there? It's the older son. It's the older son who's the good kid. He's the one who's got it together. He's the one who's always, you know, the, kind of flying under the radar because he's never doing anything outside of the box. He's never coloring outside the lines. And when the prodigal comes home, his younger brother comes home, what happens with this older son? He gets frustrated. He gets angry. He sees the party that's being thrown, and he says, you've never thrown a party for me. And this is so key to remember what he says. He says, Father, I've been slaving for you all of these years, and you never threw me a party. <coughs> I've got him too. You never threw me a party. I've been slaving for you all of these years. The older brother thinks he's a slave too, doesn't he? The older brother is living under the same slave mentality as his younger brother does. But what does the father do? He comes to him and he says these beautiful words. He says, my son, all that I have is yours. My son, all that I have is yours. And when we realize that, what he says next makes so much sense. Come in and celebrate with your brother. <laughs> because he was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. See, when we understand our sonship, it totally and radically changes the way that we see the people around us. We no longer are asking them to perform for us. We're no longer asking them to achieve for us. We are no longer asking them to do all of the things that we need them to do in order for us to feel good about them. If we know that we're sons, <coughs> then we will not require the slave mentality from others as well. Okay, so let's land this plane. What are we to do? How do we respond to this? Two quick things. And the first is this, is that we are to immerse ourselves 
in our sonship. And I know that maybe sounds a little repetitive. Maybe for some of you, you're even saying, okay, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I've heard this before. I know all that, but, but, but do you? <coughs> because sometimes, again, we can be so immersed in the kind of slave mentality that we forget what is true about us. Joy's younger brother, my brother-in-law, spent uh, the year between his graduating from high school and going to college, he spent it in Chile as an exchange student. And, and while he was in Chile, of course, he was speaking Spanish all the time. And when he would come home, the, the funniest thing happened. He'd come home and, uh, and for, for holidays and that sort of things, and we'd be talking, and, and he would just, like, his English just, like, wasn't any good. And he would talk, and he'd be like, that's the, what's the, that stuff? It's like, butter? Yeah, 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 butter, right? And you're like, how do you, forget, how do you forget butter? And he just, he just wouldn't, his English was bad because he was so immersed in Spanish, And I think that's the way that God is calling us to immerse ourselves into the language and the knowledge of our sonship such that the other language just doesn't make as much sense to us anymore, such that the the way of speaking in this other way is clunky to us, that we're just not used to it because we're so immersed in understanding our sonship as God's children. How do you do that? thankfully, with some really simple things that God has given us. He has given us his word so that we might come to know him. He has given us prayer that we might commune with him. He's given us worship so that we might come and be reminded at his table and reminded from his word so that we might sing those good words together to remind our hearts. And he's given us community so that we might tell the truth to one another. So engage in these simple things that God has given you and preach the gospel to yourself. (coughs) It's becoming a little humorous. Preach the gospel to yourself. You know, nobody, we've said this before, nobody talks to you as much as you talk to you. So let's make sure the words that you're saying to yourself are the truth. Tell yourself the truth. Tell one another the truth. Joy will say these words to me sometimes. She'll just say, you know, I just need, I need, to, I need some truth right now. I need to listen to some truth. I need to hear some truth. I need to immerse myself in some truth right now because I'm forgetting it. So that's the first thing. How do we do that? How do we live out our sonship? We immerse ourselves in the language of sonship by being a part of God's people, his word, his, the, the sacraments, worship, community, all of those things that we call the means of grace. Second thing is that we, after having immersed ourselves, we engage with patience and courage. Maybe that's a phrase you've heard me say before. It's kind of one of my favorites. We engage with patience and courage. I have a friend, I said it so many times, I had a friend who actually made a poster of it for me and framed it and gave it to me. And it just says, engage with patience and courage because it's something that I struggle with deeply. And what I mean is that we engage, first of all, with patience, meaning, again, if you are adopted into a new household, it's not always going to be easy. There is going to be difficulty. You should not be surprised that you are dealing with that conflict, with that difficulty. The Apostle Paul, one chapter before in chapter 7, says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why is it that I don't do the things that I do want to do? That's the Apostle Paul who's been a Christian for a little while by the time. This is close to the end of his life when he's writing Romans, and he's still struggling. So friends, don't think that it's odd that you would struggle. Be patient. (coughs) But in your patience, also engage with courage. When the word courage actually came into the English language, this is what it meant. 
It meant, uh, it meant the ability to tell your whole story with your whole heart. Isn't that great? The ability to tell your whole story with your whole heart, to move forward into things honestly and fully. How do we move forward into things honestly and fully? I heard someone talking about golf the other day and said, you know, when you, when you hit your tee shot into the woods and your ball is sitting behind, you know, <laughs> in, in the middle of the rough or behind a tree, he said, what you, what you can't do is try to remember how you got there. You just have to start with the fact that it's there. That, that's, that's good advice in golf, to start where you are and own it. It's also good, in li- good advice, I think, in the Christian life. We own who we are. We, we know the brokenness that we sit in. We understand and we're honest with ourselves and the people around us, and we move forward from there, and we move forward from there courageously, wholeheartedly, with the freedom of sons and daughters to come and engage and to wrap our arms around our Father who loves us, to take in the, the water that he has given us to drink, to remind ourselves of his goodness and his care, and then as Paul says here, to walk by the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, not in order that we might gain entrance into God's house, but because we already live there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, such good words to say. I say those words and I forget their meaning. I say those words and I forget their impact. I say those words and Lord, I forget that that you are the Father who loves and cares for me and for us more than any of our earthly fathers ever have. So Lord, will you remind us, will you immerse us in the truth of our sonship? Will you immerse us in the beauty of what it means to belong to you? That that means, Lord, yes, you are our authority. We are called to walk in the family ways. And it means you are our provider. You have given us what we need for the journey. And it means you are our loving and caring and gentle Abba. So, Father, we thank you for bringing us into your house. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a few moments now to reflect on these things. It's also the time that we'll respond to God's word in the giving of our tithes and offerings.